We have sung a couple of songs uh, expressing the hope of the coming Messiah. And we want to keep that sort of that hope there, that tension there as we uh, turn in our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. As we come into this uh, Christmas season, we are thankfully brought once again to focus on the glory of the Incarnation. God made flesh and come to, to dwell among us, born of a virgin, born in time and space, and born amidst a flurry of activity and a tension of hope. Born at a time, or yes, born at a time when he was expected, but no one knew when. And at this time of year, we pay specific attention to much of the activity that we read of in the scriptures and the people that are part of that activity by God's working as he works out his plan. We focus on a census and a journey to Bethlehem. Um, a manger, a young virgin and her betrothed husband and shepherds and angels and wise men and all the rest, each of them playing their part, a specific part, in bringing the Son of God into the world that he created, each knowingly or unknowingly contributing a small piece of the story that is recorded in the Gospels, especially in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Each person in the record, a, a real person, living their lives in their own time and in their own way, brought into the story of the Nativity according to God's plan. Think about all those people that are, that are part of this, some that I mentioned, some that I didn't. Have you ever thought about what they thought about, about these things that were going on, about their part in all of this? You know, we're told more than once that Jesus' mother, Mary, pondered or treasured these things up in her heart. Well, I want to look at a story about one of these this morning. I want to tell you the story this morning of a miraculous conception of a godly Jewish man and his godly wife who became pregnant against all odds. I'll tell you of the, the visit of an angel who announced the birth, the birth of a son, a son which had been foretold long ago by the prophets of God, a birth which was promised to come as a blessing to God's people. Tell you of a child who would be filled with the Spirit and would be great in the sight of the Lord. And I want to consider what one of these men thought as he observed all of these things and as he himself heard from the mouth of the angel Gabriel who came to announce this to him. What did he think? What was going on in his mind? What were his thoughts during the, the flurry of natural and supernatural events? that surrounded the birth of his prophesied son. And of course, I am talking about Zechariah. Is that not what you expected? Good. Because we must not forget that God 
promised that before Joseph and Mary, before that, before the Messiah came, that God would send another, one who would come before the Messiah to to prepare the way for him, a man that we know as John the Baptist, the one who would preach in Judea, calling men to repentance and to the fruit of repentance, to point not to himself, but to the one who would come after him, the one who would come after him but was before him, who was preferred above him, and who, when he saw Jesus, John pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who knew and proclaimed that his very purpose was to point away from himself, to prepare the way for the Christ, to prepare the people for his coming, to point men to him and then himself to decrease. And John the Baptist's birth is part of the Christmas story or we might call it, as we do this morning, a pre-Christmas story. And that is the story that Luke chooses to open his gospel. So with our, our Bibles open to Luke 1, we are going to look through uh, this chapter by looking at the text of the story to consider really what John's father, Zechariah, must have had running through his mind as these things were set in motion as these momentous events unfolded. Luke 1 just so happens to be the longest chapter in the New Testament, by verse count at least, 80 verses there. Uh, We're going to just read the sections that are of interest. We're going to skip a section in the middle. We'll mention it. But let's start with verses 5 through 7 of Luke chapter 1. So follow along. Keep your Bibles out as we step through this and read these Uh, individual portions as we go through this wonderful passage this morning. Um, As we get ready to do so, let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the the various uh, aspects of the birth of Christ that are revealed uh, in the Gospels, especially in, in Matthew and in Luke. And we pray that as Uh, We look to these words this morning and to this topic. Uh, We pray that you would uh, bless us through it and that we would be reminded of of what you did in history, Lord, to bring your Son to this world that we might be uh, redeemed through him. We pray you would bless us as we hear this morning, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So beginning in verse 5, like I said, verses 5 through 7, to get us started here, We read that in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. If you are taking notes this morning, you'll notice that the outline just has numbers there, seven things that we're going to look at. And the first thought of Zechariah that we're going to consider this morning is that Zechariah would have thought that God is good and life is good, mostly. This is the introduction of the story. After setting the story in the years of the reign of Herod over Judah, that would be Herod the Great, the first of the 
Herodian rulers in this area of the Roman Empire, an important man, though an evil uh, and violent man. He was given the title uh, the King of Judea by the Roman Senate at the beginning of his, his reign, his sort of vassal reign, which lasted from 37 B.C. until 4 B.C. Um, and that's important to mention because it sets this record, and the reason that Luke gives it here is because it sets this record, which includes the record of the birth of Jesus here, in a specific, identifiable, historical setting. Luke's gospel is not a myth. It's not a parable. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a cleverly devised fable. It is history. And so the gospel writer sets it for us in a historical context. And with that established, we learn several things then about this man that he introduces, this man named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. We learn, of course, concerning the man that his name was Zechariah. His name means Jehovah has remembered. And it was a fairly common name, but as we go through the story, keep that in mind. His name means Jehovah has remembered. It's an altogether fitting name for this man that would play this part. We also learn about his position here in these opening verses. His job says he was a priest. Now, during this time, there were lots of priests and there was a lot of work that was done by the priests in, in regard to the temple. Now, that was true in Zechariah's day here. It was also true back in the days of King David. And David had taken all of the priests and he had divided them up into 24 divisions. And they would sort of rotate in active service within the temple. And that's the same uh, as what was going on here in Luke's, uh, the day that Luke, the time that Luke wrote this. Zechariah was a member of one of those divisions. It was the eighth of the 24, and it is the division of Abijah by name. And Zechariah would have been thinking that life was good because he had a godly wife as well. Proverbs tells us that that's an exceedingly precious thing. And her name was Elizabeth. She, too, was uh, of the daughters of Aaron. So it was a great blessing. Life was good for Zechariah that he had this position, that he had a wife, a wife that came herself from priestly stock, from a priestly line. And Luke tells us in verse 6 there that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Of course, it's not saying by that that they were perfect because no one is, but that they were they walked as much as they could according to God's commandments. They were good Jewish believers in God. And God was certainly good in his grace shown to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And as we're introduced to them, Zechariah's thoughts would surely be on the goodness of God and the grace of God and that, and that under, under God and under his doing that life uh, was good, mostly. Because there was one thing that wasn't so good. Being childless in that society was a deep, deep hurt. One of the worst things that could befall a couple. And verse 7 tells us that they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And he says that they were both advanced in years, things we hear from other places in the Old Testament. 
Another thought of this godly man was perhaps, and this is the second thing, that God has given me a great privilege. What was that privilege? Well, look at verse 8 and 9. He says, Now while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Several of these duties that the priests would would do were chosen this way by lot, drawing straws, basically, randomized. And one of those, and the highest, most desired uh, task was to be the one who would go in and would burn incense before God in the holy place. Luke calls it here just the temple But the altar of incense, where the incense would be burned, was in the holy place, just in front of the veil which led into the Holy of Holies. And into there only the high priest could go once a year. And it was so great a privilege to be able to burn this incense that each priest would only be able to do it once in his lifetime. And it just so happened that this privilege at this time fell to Zechariah. A great privilege, a great responsibility. And so another thought that Zechariah had would surely have been, don't mess this up. Don't mess this up. We read in verse 10 that the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And then what would happen is is that Zechariah, along with two attendants, would enter the holy place together, the attendants would make everything ready, and then they would leave, and then the the burner of the incense, Zechariah in this case, would await a signal, and then he would go in and put the incense on the coals, and as the smoke of the incense rose, he would offer intercessory prayer for the people of Israel. By the way, isn't it great to know, and do you realize that we all have that privilege today as those who live on this side of the cross, this side of the work of Christ. We can, each and every one of us, at any time, come before God and pray for ourselves and others. But then, in this case, when, when he had completed his work, when he had offered up the prayers, offered up the incense, he would come back out where the people would be waiting so that the final part of the service could be done. But on this day, after Zechariah goes into the temple, the people wait, and they wait, and they wait. What's keeping Zechariah? Has something gone wrong? Well, meanwhile, within the holy place, Zechariah's next thought might be, something has gone wrong, and very right. Something has gone wrong and very right, but something is wrong to Zechariah because one of the attendants did not leave like they were supposed to leave. Either that or or someone has entered in where they most assuredly are not to enter, into the holy place, because through the smoke of the burning incense, Zechariah sees standing to the right of the altar a man. But then he realizes, no, it's not a man. Look at verse 11. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. An angel has come. 
into the holy place has come a holy messenger. What is this tiding? Zechariah might have asked. And the angel brings to him an unbelievable message. It's there in verses 13 through 17. But first look at verse 12. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink strong wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Wow. I mean, there's just all sorts of wonderful going on there. After 400 years of silence, remember, from, from the end of Malachi, when God finished that statement, he had stopped. And it had been 400 years of silence. And now God has again spoken to his people. That's wonderful. That's important. And to Zechariah, not just to his people, but to me. God has spoken to me. And he's troubled. Fear fell upon him. That's always the case when angels come and speak to people. That's the first response. And the angel says, don't be afraid. He says, your prayers have been heard. What prayers do you think? His job was to pray for the people of Israel, which he surely did. But the angel isn't talking about those prayers. He's talking about a prayer of Zechariah that he had probably prayed for years and maybe long since stopped praying about since he and Elizabeth were both getting up there in years. He relates the angel does an answer to that prayer. He says, your wife will bear a son. But in that, in that answer, will also answer the prayers of every God-fearing Jewish man and woman that God would send the Messiah to his people. That is involved here. Look at verses 16 and 17. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, will this son of yours, Zechariah. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What do you think Zechariah was thinking when he heard that? Well, I'm sure he's thinking of our reading, our Old Testament reading this morning, the very last words of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. You see, beloved, this morning the angel Gabriel is saying that what God had promised is about to happen. And the one who is promised to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah and prepare the way and the people for the anointed one of God to come, Zechariah, is your son. 
He will fulfill the promise of the coming messenger. And he will make ready the way for the Lord God himself. What a great joy. I can't imagine what what he thought. And verse 14 says, not only will you have joy and gladness, he says, but many will rejoice at his birth. And we rejoice at his birth as the preparer for the one who would come, whose birth we celebrate during this time. And then the angel gives some instruction concerning this child. Verse 13 says, you shall call his name John. And he is to be dedicated especially to the Lord his whole life, because he is the Lord's his whole life. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, he says, even from his mother's womb. And he says he's not to drink wine or strong drink. Similar to the Old Testament uh, Nazarite vow. Not exactly the same. It's not uh, all of the pieces aren't there. But it is that John is called to an ascetic life, to a separate life. Now the next thought of Zechariah is an unfortunate one for him. Uh, the next thought is, what sign will I get regarding this? And that's what he asked. Look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Oh, Zechariah. He asks for a sign. And in a way here that, it, that expresses doubt. See, this is different than Mary's, and Mary's uh, comes up later in this chapter. She asks for enlightenment. How will these things be since I am a virgin? How will God accomplish this? But Zechariah is saying, this can't be. So he asks, how, how shall I know? What sign can you give me about this? He's questioning the truth of this revelation. If you look down in verse 20, uh, he says that you will be silent because you did not believe my words. So as Zechariah asks for a sign, Gabriel says, okay, you'll get a sign. And he, he gives Zechariah a unique opportunity for reflection, a time to give some more thought to what more he might need than the word and the promise of God through this heavenly messenger. Verse 19 says that the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. His unbelief, Zechariah's unbelief regarding the words of this angel will, resent, will, will result rather in his own inability to use any words until these things are fulfilled, which Gabriel assures him will take place, my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah spoke words of doubt, and now the angel says those are the last words that you're going to speak until you speak regarding the fulfillment of this, which you will see when God fulfills his promise. So think about that for the next nine months or so. 
Now, if you recall, outside, this is in the holy place, this is going on, outside are all the people in the temple court waiting for Zechariah to come out. And when he does come out, he can't speak. Verse 22 says that he kept making signs to them and remained mute. He can't speak. There's also some indication, some some reason to think perhaps that he may not have been able to hear either. We'll see that a little later. But then, in verse 24, the Lord fulfills his promise. Elizabeth conceives a child. And as happened so often with women in the Old Testament who were likewise blessed, she gives thanks to God. Verse 25, thus the Lord has done for me in the day when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Because being childless was a reproach. And God has taken that away in answer to their prayer. Long past the time when you could say, oh good, she was able to get pregnant. This is again, she's barren and they're both old. That's another one of those instances where God sort of stacks the deck against himself in order to show his power. Well, next then we have sort of an an interlude here in the story. It makes me sort of think about the the sandwiches, the textual sandwiches we've seen in Mark. Uh, This is something kind of similar here because Zechariah or, or Luke now leaves off the story of Zechariah and goes on and talks about another aspect of the story where this angel comes to another person, a young woman named Mary, and announces to her that she will have a son, the Messiah himself, the Son of God, God with us, the Lord Jesus. And so that takes place here in verses 26 down through verse 56. And that's not our topic this morning, so we'll skip over that. But what would Zechariah be thinking about during these nine months, during all of this that's been going on? I think he would be thinking, God is faithful. God is good. He's faithful to his people. He's faithful to his promises. Certainly, Zechariah's thoughts would have flown back to the announcement of of God to the patriarch Abraham and Sarah, who was also barren, who was also advanced in years, that she would conceive and bear a child, and perhaps also uh, God's grace to Rebekah, and Hannah, and the the Shunammite woman, as well as, perhaps, Samson's mother, all in very similar situations. And now the same grace from the same gracious God has come, and the blessing has been shown to his wife. And I think he would certainly rejoice in this amazing fact that God has now spoken again to his people. We had no word for 400 years. That would test the faith of anyone. But now he's spoken again. And he has spoken through the angel to Zechariah. And the message is an affirmation of what God had promised the last time he spoke. His, his plan just sort of picking right up where it left off. It makes me think of uh, John Calvin when he was forced to leave Geneva in, in 1538, he was right in the middle of preaching through the book of Psalms. And when he returned to Geneva three years later, I think it was, 
and he stepped back into the pulpit, he began with the very next verse that he had left off from. And now God, after promising a forerunner to set the stage and then this 400 years of silence, now he picks right up with that same promise and sends word to Zechariah that it is about to happen. And Zechariah must have thought something like, I understand that that this promise and the prophetic work of my son is not for some distant time. This is happening now. The wheels are in motion. The Messiah, the promised Messiah, is on his way, really on his way. You know, let's pause there for just a minute and let us, beloved, also take time during these days here to to reflect on the promises of God and his faithfulness in fulfilling them. Not just that Jesus is born, but that Jesus was prophesied to be born in this particular way, in this particular time, in this particular situation. And reflect on the faithfulness of God in fulfilling his promises to his people. And we have much more than Zechariah had during these days to meditate on. We have Christ. We have not just, not just his promise, the promise of him coming. We have not just the forerunner of him coming. But we have Christ coming to look back and to celebrate during this time. We have his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his continuing work through the Holy Spirit and through the gospel preached throughout the world and his promise that he's coming again to bring the fullest and eternal manifestation of the kingdom of God. We have all of that to to look forward to, to look back on, and to rejoice in. Let us rejoice during this time. There's one more thought of John, I'm sorry, of Zechariah that, that we want to look at this morning. And let's say that John thought, or sorry, that Zechariah thought John, not Zechariah Jr. Zechariah's story picks back up in verse 57. And we read that the time comes then for Elizabeth to give birth. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. It was a great blessing, a great source of joy in, to, to Elizabeth, to Zechariah, to their family, and to their community, that the Lord had opened her womb, especially in the, in the situation that they were in, both being advanced age, her being barren, and had given them a child, a joy that was shared by not just her relatives, but by the whole community, that God had done this. As we're to rejoice with those who rejoice, they do that here, they rejoice with her. And then this momentous event is followed eight days later uh, by the circumcision of the child, and for the first time in Scripture, just a side note here, the connection of the circumcision of a child with the naming of a child. This is the first time that that happens. And then we see a bit of a 
family community disagreement play out here. In the second half of verse 59, we learn that they would have called him Zechariah after his father. That was very common practice. And they refers probably, yes, to the members of the family and to a lesser degree to the community around them. They were all rejoicing. They were all a part of this. And they're confused by the fact that Elizabeth refuses to do that. The insistence by, by, by Elizabeth that his name is John. Since, as the people point out here, none of their relatives were called John. So why would you name him John? They had much more structured ways of, of picking names than opening up a baby book and pointing their finger down and seeing what name they pick or picking it from a television star or a sports star. Probably an internet influencer in these days. But she insists he will be called John. And when she continues to insist, they decide to go to Zechariah, and we'll get this squared away, to ask him to make the call, so to speak. So they ask him, verse 62 says that they made signs to him. That's one of the things that, that makes some scholars say, well, maybe he's deaf as well as mute. Um, speculation there, but it makes sense. And Zechariah would be thinking, John. Definitely John. I've been silent uh, for being um, unbelieving. I'm not going to have something happen by being disobedient. Verse 63 says, he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, <laughs> I love this, of the way it's said, his name is John. And they all wondered. They didn't argue, but they wondered. And verse 64 tells us that immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. At which time I can imagine the thought of Zechariah was just like the angel said would happen. And I'm sure that it came without much conscious thought to Zechariah that the first thing to do was just what he did. Verse 64 says that he spoke, blessing God. Imagine the story that he had to tell. Well, we don't have to imagine it, did we? We just read it. Um, but the now verbal priest of the division of Abijah, who had burned incense in the holy place and who had spoken to an angel, who had become a father in his old age, was not done speaking on this day. We have recorded in verses 68 through 79 Zechariah's own prophecy, and it is a prophecy. In the interlude, though we didn't read, uh, Mary's song of praise is recorded there, which we know as the Magnificat. Well, Zechariah's prophecy also has a name. Did you know that? It's called the Benedictus, which, like the Magnificat, is taken from the first word of the, the song in the Latin version. And so to ask the question here, what was Zechariah thinking, is to ask, a more profound question than anywhere previously in our story because we're told explicitly that these words now that he speaks are a result of his being filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Earlier, when Elizabeth was visited by Mary, Luke said that Elizabeth was likewise filled with the Holy Spirit. And in both cases, the result is that they spoke things which were beyond their knowledge as just two Jewish people in the first century B.C. there. And Zechariah's statement here, his song here, is a prophecy in that it is both a proclamation of God's word, a message from God, and it is a prediction of that which is sure to happen because it is God that will make it happen. It is God's will that it should happen. And here is the song in verses 68 through 79. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Beautiful. He starts by giving thanks to God, not not now for the gift of a child in his old age, but for the fulfillment of God's promise that he would visit his people, that he would send one to redeem his people, to fulfill the promise that he would come again to them and raise up for them a king. The king which had been prophesied, the king promised to David it, In 2 Samuel 7, the king who would rule over his people, a king whose kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom and a holy kingdom. It is the promise of the covenant made with Abraham and to all those who believe in the Messiah who was to come. The deliverance from enemies in order that they might serve him without fear and do so, he says, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And in verse 76, then, he turns briefly to this son that he has just had, John. And he says in verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Here is the work of John, the son of Zechariah, known to history as John the Baptist, to prepare the way for Christ, to announce his arrival, to call people to repentance and to point to Christ. And then Zechariah turns back to the tender mercy of God, who in fulfillment of the covenant is sending his light into the world so that those who sit in darkness, and that's in Zechariah's time, and it's in our time as well, that those who sit in darkness will see a great light, as Isaiah had prophesied back in Isaiah 9, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Peace, that is, with God. 
which will come through the work of the Prince of Peace, who Zechariah's son will announce. In verse 80 concludes the story of Zechariah. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the days of his public appearance to Israel. We don't know how long Zechariah lived after the birth of his son. He was, after all, advanced in years, verse 7. But this is the last we hear about him or from him in Scripture. But if he lived into the public ministry of his son, we can only imagine the thoughts that he pondered in his heart. Beloved, let us have similar thoughts during this season, thoughts that focus on the faithfulness of God in sending John the Baptist first and then in sending his son. Focus on on this coming of Christ as the result and the manifestation and the fulfillment of the promises of God that he would do these things that he has said that he would do to save his people. And let us with the angels, say glory to God in the highest. And to that, let us say amen. Father, we thank you for this story that we don't often think about. Uh, we thank you for how it worked into the, the, your plan to bring about the forerunner, to prepare the way for your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that as we we think on these things that we might, Lord, be reminded of your faithfulness, of your grace, of your power, of your mercy to sinners, that you would arrange things perfectly as, as you did, that your son might be born in order that we might have peace with you. And we ask this in his name. Amen.